Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. It's been two weeks since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and people all over the country have been trying to figure out how to respond to it. In Virginia, abortions are still legal during the first and second trimesters. And after about seven months, Virginia doctors can perform abortions only if the life of the pregnant person is threatened. But that may well change. Governor Glenn Youngkin responded to the decision by calling on his fellow Republican legislators to push for restrictions on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Here in Charlottesville, a number of organizations are working to educate people about the Supreme Court decision and its local impacts. If you have questions, we encourage you to look up the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund, Planned Parenthood Charlottesville, Repro Rising Virginia, UVA Survivors, Period at UVA, or talk to a medical care provider. We'll have more local coverage as things unfold both here and on our sister podcast, Bold Dominion. Today, though, we're going to focus on the decision itself. We're bringing you a teach-in by UVA Law Professor Ann Coughlin and Professor Bonnie Gordon. Welcome to our session titled Demystifying Dobbs. We hope that this will be just one of many conversations that we have with all of you in the aftermath of the United States Supreme Court's decision to strip from the people their constitutional right to choose abortion care. I I can't tell you how pleased I am to see all of you here tonight. It's been a very heavy few days, and it's really an honor and an opportunity to be able to spend time talking to you about this case. My name is Ann Coughlin. I'm a professor of law here at UVA Law School. I am also co-director of UVA's Sound Justice Lab. Uh, My teaching package includes courses in feminist legal theory and gender justice. I also teach criminal law and criminal procedure. Professor Bonnie Gordon is going to be joining me in leading our uh, journey through the Dobbs decision. Uh, Bonnie is a professor in UVA's music department, and she is also co-director of the Sound Justice Lab. She teaches courses in music history, feminist theory, and community engagement. So we're in the house tonight because we think it's essential for all of us to understand the Supreme Court's decision to eliminate a well-settled and precious constitutional liberty. Um, The overruling of Roe is going to bring many difficult questions to our doors. All of us in the room are asking a series of tough questions. Who is suffering and who needs care? What kind of care do they need and who can supply it? What actions do we expect state legislators to take in the coming months to curb our access to reproductive care? What might the Supreme Court do next? Where can we best direct our energy? And so we have to tackle all of these questions and many more. There are many more questions that we haven't even identified. But our thought was that for all of us to participate in these arenas effectively and assertively, we have to understand the basic moves that the court made in Dobbs. And my agenda then brings me to another sponsor of tonight's conversation, 
and that is UVA's new sound justice lab for which Nomi Dave, who is here this evening, Bonnie Gordon and I are co-directors. Our lab doesn't go live until July 1st, but live or not, we thought that tonight was the night to put the lab to work. Just so you'll know, UVA's Democracy Institute funded our lab to explore very specific questions about gender justice. And as the fates would have it, the Dobbs case is a brutal example of why those questions matter so much to everyone in 2022. So the questions that we are asking, what happens to our law and to our democracy when judges, politicians, and other powerful institutional players ignore the voices of women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, and indigenous people. To pick just one example, we ask, what does justice look like and sound like when formal decision makers, including the courts, base their doctrines and their rulings on narratives that exclude the perspectives and experiences of women and girls? When our judges and politicians silence the voices of women and girls, where do those voices go? That is a key question that we aim to explore. The voices may be omitted from official texts, but they will rise in other places. People will search for justice in ordinary, informal places, relying on community norms and creative practices. And our lab's agenda, we hope you'll collaborate with us, is to amplify and support those voices and their gender justice claims. So with those big questions hovering above us, let's do it. Let's demystify Dobbs. Now, I dare say that many of us in this room are not experts in constitutional law. And all too often, I'm afraid, and I know, because I don't actually teach constitutional law, we're made to believe that we don't have anything useful to say in this sphere. If you are not a common law expert, you don't belong in the room, you can't evaluate the court's reasoning for yourself, and you have nothing useful to contribute to debates over whether the, the court got things right or got things wrong. Even worse, sometimes we are made to feel, look, the law is the law, the court is following the law, and you can't fault the court for following the law. That's what courts do. All of that stuff, it's complete nonsense. And it's really, really dangerous nonsense. Um, the other really fundamental point that I want to make is the Constitution is the law for the people. And everyone in this room, we are part of the people. Each of us has a powerful voice in understanding and evaluating the court's constitutional pronouncements. So with a little bit of mental elbow grease, you can do it, so let's do it. So here's the constitutional text that's at stake in Dobbs. I've put it up there. Uh, this is section one of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, and as you can say, it reads, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's the provision that the court is construing in Dobbs. The next thing I want to do is to focus you very precisely on the job that the court was doing in Dobbs and the nature of the dispute between the majority and the dissent. 
So the legal question in Dobbs turns on the meaning of this word liberty for purposes of the due process clause. And I want you to notice, because this is what I tell my students, this is a routine legal question, right? This comes up all the time in law. What is the meaning of a word that appears in the governing legal text? The meaning of the word is going to determine the outcome of the dispute. So this is a familiar question, and it's one that comes up for all of us, not just in law circles and in your lives, too. And this is something that I tell my students all the time. You're quite familiar with the problem. You're reading something. What does the word mean? And so in a very real sense, that's what the justices and Dobbs are doing. They have to decide what liberty means, and so they turn to what they believe are what we might call the relevant dictionaries or sources of definitions so that they can land on the correct, the correct explanation for the word. And so that's one thing that's going on in Dobbs. At the end of the day, what you're seeing is a dispute between the majority of the justices, the justices that overrule Roe v. Wade, and the dissenters. It's a dispute over what sources you look to to decide what counts as constitutional liberty. And that's a dispute, a debate, in which all of us have a stake and I really want all of you to pause and to think about this deeply going into the future. So next thing, to understand Dobbs, I've got to give you a very quick tour of two cases that are really important in the Dobbs decision. The first, of course, is Roe against Wade, which was decided in 1972. The other is a case which you've probably heard of. It's Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania against Casey, decided in 1992. Um, so Roe is the case where the United States Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that made it a crime to perform an abortion unless the purpose of the abortion was to save a woman's life. And the, so the seven justices held that the 14th Amendment's due process clause protects a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. And when announcing this ruling, the court relies on a long line of cases that were also founded in the 14th Amendment that protect individual decisions related to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child rearing, and education. But here's the other thing. At the same time in Roe, the court recognized that states have a valid interest in regulating the abortion decision, and the court describes what those state interests are. They include protecting potential life, maintaining medical standards, and safeguarding the health of the woman. In the first trimester, the court holds the state may not interfere at all with a person's decision to terminate their pregnancy. But at any time after that point, the state may adopt regulations to protect the pregnant person's health, after viability, which is defined in Roe as the point when the fetus has the capability of meaningful life outside the womb, the state could ban abortions, except when they are necessary to preserve the pregnant person's life or health. That's Roe. So that brings us to Casey. And what Casey does is it reaffirms the core holding of Roe with some important uh, 
departure, shall we say. Um, but this time around, in Casey, the court placed the right to choose on firm constitutional ground by making clear that the right is encompassed by the constitutional definition of liberty. So Casey goes out of its way to say, this is a due process liberty interest. Again, as I said, what Casey mentions is that just like the decision to get married, just like the decision to use contraception, the decision to have an abortion is central to your ability, your freedom to chart your life's course. And therefore, it's one of the decisions that deserves constitutional protections. Here's what Casey also did. It gives the states more authority to regulate abortions. So it changes up the Roe framework that the state can regulate not only to protect the woman's health in the early stages of a pregnancy, but also to promote prenatal life. At the same time, Casey emphasizes the courts are forbidden to enact regulations that place an undue burden or substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. Prior to viability, the woman retains the right to exercise ultimate control over her destiny and her body. And that, of course, brings us to Dobbs. And at issue in Dobbs was a law the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, which provided in part, except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. That was the question the court had to decide the constitutionality of that law. And what Chief Justice Roberts points out in his concurring opinion is that the majority of the justice could have and would have upheld that statute. They could have done that without overruling Roe and without overruling Casey. This is really an important thing for us all to grasp. Okay, here's what Justice Roberts had to say. You only decide that which must be decided, the constitutionality of that law, and you leave the other questions, should Roe be overruled, to be considered at another day in a case that squarely raises the question. Dobbs did not squarely raise that question. The court could have ruled, and Chief Justice Roberts says he would have ruled that abortion prohibitions before viability are not always unconstitutional. He would uphold the 15-week rule even if it were to be applied in cases where the viability threshold had not been reached. He is worried about the legitimacy of his court because they have violated this principle of judicial restraint and when they do that, he fears, I'm not sure about all of you, but the chief fears, that we, the people, are going to lose our respect for the court as an institution. So now we turn to Justice Alito's opinion for the majority. And it's here where I'm very good, quickly going to enlist the help of Bonnie Gordon, 
he delves deeply into history, and, and here's the move that he makes. Our job as judges is to construe what liberty means. He expresses some doubt that liberty has any substantive content. Liberty is something for the states to decide. But we do have a line of cases that say that there is constitutionally protected liberty interest in marriage, uh, procreation, contraception, education of children, and so forth. But we only do that when these liberty interests are deeply rooted, deeply and objectively, he says, deeply and objectively rooted in our history's traditions. And the history and traditions to which he looks are the history and traditions with which the ratifiers of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment would have been familiar. And, but then he makes another important move. He really doesn't focus on what liberty would have meant to those people. He instead asks, would they have believed that there was a right to an abortion? Would they, is there historical evidence to suggest that there was a right to an abortion at that time? Now you can see how framing the issue in this way, you already know the answer. Um, but Bonnie is gonna tell you about the evidence that the court turns to. I started thinking about this with my research assistant, Catherine Churchill, who's not here. She's in the English department, and she studies the Middle Ages in England and France, and I study uh, the early modern period in Italy so and Spain. So between us, we cover the 13th through the 19th century in Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. Um, and we wondered what we would say if we got this as a draft. This, the draft came down as we were getting group projects in our various early classes. Um, and this started, I have to admit, as something of a joke, but we did write a set of comments um, that we didn't send to anyone. Dear students, we need to remind you of the perils of enlisting pre-modern sources to shed light on the meaning of words used many centuries later by the framers of our Constitution. You use sources from the 13th through the 18th centuries, an era when the science of reproduction was in its embryonic stage. Obviously, it didn't take the invention of the microscope to figure out that sex made babies, but the details of eggs and sperm were not discovered until the late 17th century. It was not until the 19th century that scientists figured out how they actually worked together. Women's bodies were mysterious, dangerous, inferior. Early modern virginity tests involved having a woman sit over a head of garlic. If her breath smelled like garlic, she was guilty. <laughs> Meanwhile, listening to violins made of vipers instead of sheep guts might cause a miscarriage. And until the 17th century, it was widely accepted that male fetuses received souls at about 40 days, whereas females received them closer to 80 days. We are disappointed that you seem not to understand the challenges of editing sources and the perils of translation, and are surprised to see that you use the 13th century cleric and jurist Henry de Bracton of 13th century. A hand-copied text, you might recall from our many discussions, works like a game of scribal telephone. Like many manuscript traditions, Bracton has no official version. The numerous extant versions have many passages that are illegible, so it's hard to tell what the text even says. 
You use a translation from 1870, which is quite sloppy by contemporary standards. You would do well to cite the authoritative 1922 translation made from 11 editions. And of course, for very key passages, you might want to quote the original Latin, as translation is tricky. Perhaps most importantly, it's key to remember that in many of the sources you cite, the church was the state and vice versa. And laws around procreation have always been deeply political. This includes abortion. In 1588, Pope Sixtus V issued contra abortum, which made abortion a capital offense. The ruling lasted less than three years. The next pope declared it ineffective and brutal. His the ruling that made abortion acceptable until insolment stuck until 1869 when Pope Pius IX brought it back, declaring abortions homicide. He was also the pope that created papal infallibility and lived by a creed that modernity and Catholicism were mutually exclusive. So I'll stop here. We did go on and on and on. Um, and the question is, was there a legal right to abortion from the framers or in 1868? Obviously, the answer is no. Nor was there the right for me to wear trousers. That waited until 1923. Nor could I have a passport without my husband until 1920. Nor was there a telephone, nor were there zippers. So Alito writes, the inescapable conclusion is that the right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persists from the earliest days of common law until 1973. Kavanaugh writes, but a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in American history and tradition as the Kurt thoroughly explains. Evidently, it was not settled. So again, did the framers intend the right to abortion? No. The framer who founded this university did not attend me to attend it, much less teach at it. The framers wrote in a time when black people, brown people, women, indigenous people may or may not have had souls. Received medical knowledge understood women as, in, as imperfect. Ben Franklin did have an abortion recipe in one of his books, but that seems to be beside the point. The 14th Amendment, they argue, we must read as the ratifiers did. The dissent reminds us that the people who ratified the 14th Amendment were men. So let me add that when the 14th Amendment was ratified, I still could not wear pants or have my very own passport. Women also couldn't loan property. The historical questions here are not trivial. What did these sources mean by the word abortion? Was it a medical procedure? What did quickening imply? What did crime imply? So abortion comes from the Latin word abortio, which could refer either to a miscarriage or an abortion. Alito quotes an English translation of Bracton saying that if a person has struck a pregnant woman or has given her poison whereby he has caused an abortion, if the fetus be already formed and animated, and particularly if he be animated, he commits homicide. He ignores the fact that this reflects a distinct legal concern called miscarriage by assault rather than abortion. The distinction is fuzzy, and in fact, miscarriage is still often called spontaneous abortion. This is not news to the many women who have had miscarriages. So in the early modern period through the 18th century, often trials, around, trials were around whether something was a miscarriage or an induced abortion. Crimes also, it's important to remember, were quite different. It was a complicated system of canon, ecclesiastical law, and civil law. 
Law was the province of men, pregnancy was the province of women. It was complicated to put them together. So needless to say, the founders did not mention abortion, nor did they mention many other things. And the, other, the final thing I want to say is that the court very much wants to avoid the question of what quickening meant and what insolment meant. That's actually at the heart of some of the deepest problems in our country, because the founders justified enslavement based on who had souls and who didn't. You could enslave people as long as they didn't have souls. And remember, of course, that the Constitution was, had the three-fifths compromise, meaning that five enslaved people equaled three humans to determine representation. So like so many things that this court is doing, they're talking about what counts as a person, and I think we hope they don't go back to the 19th century and before, but we're not sure where they're going, or maybe we are. I think before we go there, we'll just reflect briefly on the dissent, which in less eloquent terms makes some of the points that Bonnie makes. And that is that the framers, the ratifiers, deliberately chose the word liberty because they knew it was capacious and they intended for that word to be one that had the power to evolve as times changed. They deliberately did not enact a specific list of the liberties of which they approved. They knew that there were many components of liberty, or they imagined that there could be components of liberty that they had never seen, that they had never glimpsed at all or only dimly. So the methodological point is that when the framers used the word liberty, they did not intend for the Supreme Court to construe it according to the cramped, historical, objective uh, approach that the majority uses. You were not to look back in time and ask what were the historical practices in the 13th century up to the time of the ratification. But the idea was that the word was intended to evolve. It was designed to evolve as we identified more precious ways of supporting our freedoms in contemporary culture. But the dissent is very, very moving and very powerful, and they make the point absolutely clearly that the Constitution read as the majority does consigns women to second-class citizenship. The majority's core legal postulate then is that we in the 21st century must read the 14th Amendment just as its ratifiers did. And that is indeed what the majority emphasizes over and over again. If the ratifiers did not understand something essential to freedom, then neither can we. Or said more particularly, if those people did not understand reproductive rights as part of the guarantee of liberty conferred in the 14th Amendment, those rights do not exist. As an initial matter, the dissenters say, note a mistake in the sentence that we just wrote. We referred there to the people who ratified the 14th Amendment. What rights did those people have in their heads at the time? 
But of course, people did not ratify the 14th Amendment, the dissenters point out. Men did. So it is perhaps not so surprising that the ratifiers were not perfectly attuned to the importance of reproductive rights for women's liberty or for their capacity to participate as equal members of our nation. So Justice Thomas concurs in the opinion, but he says that he would go a lot farther in terms of rolling back constitutional protections that the court has recognized, including our liberty interest in contraception, our liberty interest in gay marriage, our liberty interest in same-sex sex. So he says he is prepared to overrule Griswold, Obergefell, Lawrence v. Texas, and potentially other decisions. This is very frightening. Um, but the other thing that struck me when I was reading an op-ed in the New York Times that was reassuring us that we didn't need to worry about this because we had Kavanaugh and Roberts would get our back, that may be true, but what about the people who will suffer in the meantime? That's what worries me. If a state decides tomorrow to ban gay marriage, there is going to be a great deal of suffering among the people in that state. If, God forbid, a state decides to outlaw contraception, if it decides to outlaw same-sex sex, if it decides to outlaw interracial marriage, which is not unthinkable given Thomas's position. But in the meantime, think about the folks whose lives are been, have been disrupted. And, and that, to me, is the cruelty of that concurring opinion. It is a direct statement that one of the justices on the United States Supreme Court and possibly others are open for business to consider overruling these precious rights. Once again, for more information, you can check out links to local reproductive health organizations in our show notes. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our producer is Paige Waterhouse. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Punt. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.